0: To most of the American people, Dr. Leary is known as the LSD guru. He has never ceased to astound me, amaze me, perplex me, and teach me something new every time we meet. And I expect in the next 26 years, he will continue to do that. And if longevity research pays off, he'll be doing that for a couple hundred years more.
1: Welcome to the hilaritas podcast brought to you by hilaritas press my name is mike gathers join us as we explore the world of iconic writer robert anton wilson and the people and ideas who influenced him on our last episode biographer and poet nicholas murray took time to chat with us about aldous huxley and in today's episode we discuss dr timothy leary with john higgs visit us at hilaritaspress.com podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. And while you're out and about on the internet, please hit the subscribe button, the like button, and or leave us a review for the Lartos podcast to help find the others and spread the word. It helps more than you might think. A rising star in the field of clinical psychology in the 1950s, Dr. Timothy Leary published his book, The Interpersonal Diagnosis of Personality, in 1957. Dubbed the most important book in psychotherapy of the year by the annual review of psychology, Leary's research led to the development of transactional analysis popularized by Eric Byrne in his 1964 book, Games People Play. Behind the scenes, Leary felt a growing dissatisfaction with routines and predictability of 1950s middle-class intellectual life. He had begun teaching at Harvard when a colleague told Tim about his experience with psychedelic mushroom on a trip to Mexico. So in August 1960... Timothy Leary traveled to Cuernavaca, Mexico, and consumed psilocybin mushrooms for the first time. Leary would later comment that he had learned more about his brain and its possibilities, and more about psychology, in the five hours after taking these mushrooms, than in the preceding 15 years of studying and doing research. He began a psychedelic research program at Harvard University with Richard Alpert, but within three years the situation had gotten so out of hand that Harvard terminated Leary and Alpert in 1963. Intrigued by his research, three heirs to the melon fortune lent Leary and Albert their 2,300-acre estate in Millbrook, New York, where they continued their experimentation with psychedelics. Meanwhile, after a few years in Yellow Springs, Ohio, Bob the Provider took a job with Ralph Ginsburg's Fact magazine and moved the family to New York. In Cosmic Trigger, Bob the Reporter wrote, I wanted to interview the controversial Dr. Leary for Fact, but Ralph with that strange prescience which marks his career, said the psychedelic drug excitement was all over, 1964, and nobody was interested anymore, 1964, and Timothy Leary will soon be forgotten, 1964. Still, I wanted to meet Dr. Leary. Finally finagled a freelance assignment from Paul Krasner of The Realist and made the journey up the Hudson to the Millbrook Ashram. In his autobiography, Flashbacks, Tim Leary wrote, Robert and I spent the afternoon discussing game theory, the application of Einsteinian and quantum physics to psychology, the redefinition of vague words like neurosis and ethological terms, and the relationship between space-time changes in the psychedelic experience compared with my space-time definition of personality types. In the subsequent 18 years, I have been interviewed by hundreds of journalists, some hostile, most sympathetic. With one exception, Wilson was the only one who had read my books and was ready to discuss the scientific nature of my work. And now, with all that said, I'm super excited to introduce our guest for today's episode, John Higgs. Welcome to the La Podcast. This season, we're discussing... Influences on Robert Anton Wilson, and today we're talking about Timothy Leary. So I'm very excited to have Timothy Leary biographer John Higgs on. John, welcome.
0: Hi, Mike. Lovely to talk to you.
1: Yeah. So John, has uh, you've written a few books now. Uh, I Have America Surrounded, The Life of Timothy Leary was your first, I believe.
0: Yeah, it was. It was about 2005 I wrote that. I think it came out about 2006. Well, that's why I was apologizing earlier. If it takes me a while to get <laughs> somewhere oh. inside my head is buried that book. I've written about another 10 since then.
1: Oh, no kidding.
0: Yeah. So my poor brain has uh, shifted quite a few bits of information into, into deep storage. But it's all there somewhere. I've got no doubt.
1: Well, we'll work at it slowly. I know you wrote a book on uh, the kind of enigmatic band, the KOF. And uh mm-hmm. William Blake, most recently, and I saw an announcement where we're to expect a Beatles book next year.
0: A Beatles and Bond book, yeah, called "Live and Let Die."
1: Oh, right. That's oh.
0: that's coming out next September.
1: Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's slowly start to dip in. Uh, we're you know talking about Leary and the context of his influence on Robert Anton Wilson, and maybe this is a little overly ambitious on my part, but I'd love to. When I bring up Timothy Leary in front of a lot of folks, there's so much mytholo- negative mythology around mm. him. And I'd kind of like to see if we can chip away at some of that today and maybe recast the man. But it might take a few more podcast episodes to than that.
0: It would take a lot to sort of shift the horror people have around his name still. People go, Timothy Leary, he's a charlatan. And you go, why? In what way is he a charlatan? And they're like, he just is. He somehow managed to sort of develop this position of scapegoat now for the the whole psychedelic movement. Anything that went horribly wrong, you can put on Timothy Leary. Blame Leary. You know, it it was just him. He was a bad person. It's not psychedelics. It's not the movement. It's not what we're learning from these things. It was was that guy over there. And, you know, he's great at that. He's great at the role of scapegoat of um, Mm. everything that's wrong. I think a lot of people in psychedelic research are probably aware that maybe their parents are disappointed that they're in psychedelic research or that they don't feel it's respected by the culture in the way that they admire it and and things like that so to be able to say no 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 it's just that's just timothy leary you know it's a sort of put off and you know maybe in some ways that's that's necessary you know as more and more medical research gets undertaken and as as Academia and and science slowly return and look at the sort of questions that it raises. Maybe we need that. Maybe that's necessary. But I, you know, I'm one of the few people who, well, like Robert Anton Wilson. I would just firmly stand next to Timothy Leary, and and you know, I'm very fond of the fella.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah, It's a very brave undertaking, in a way, to tackle Timothy Leary with your first book, especially because yeah, I had to put him no idea in... what I was doing. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to put a man in a positive light, you picked a hell of a, hell of a challenge for your... It, ca- it came about
0: because i had become friendly with uh, an old uh, beat poet who's no longer with us, sadly, but a guy called Brian Barrett. He was living in South London at the time, and me and my friend Finn would go, go and visit him most weeks, and he would just tell us all these stories. And he was with Leary in Algiers, and he was with Leary in Switzerland, and they had a falling out in the 80s because Brian just got into heroin and, and that was it for Leary. But he'd had all this time with him in the 70s and he just keep coming out with these stories and you just go, my God, this is extraordinary, this life story. I've never heard anything quite as adventurous or exciting or interesting or important. And yet you become aware that whenever you heard Leary be mentioned, maybe online or in a book or something like, it was just all the context was gone. It was just lacking. Mm. It just sort of wasn't there. And I think it was a good few years I just kept going, somebody really has to write a book about Timothy Leary. It's ridiculous that nobody's writing a book about Timothy Leary. What's the matter with these people? Before the realization that, oh, it's me. It's it's falling to me, isn't it? I'm the one who's going to, <laughs> going to do that.
1: I have to admit, when I when I read your book, I thought I was well-versed on, on Timothy Leary. And I walked away from your book going who the heck is brian barrett and where the heck did he come from because it he had somehow never shown up on my radar and then yeah he was- I,
0: I i think this is a case of me being in europe the period when leary was out of america we find quite interesting whereas i think in america the focus is mainly on sort of 1967 era mm. leary. that's what they want that's the, the the thing they like so the whole High farce of the the chase around the world over many years as the, as the most wanted one in America, man in America, sort of on the run. People didn't really focus on that to the same extent. They didn't sort of fly out and visit the places and speak to the people he was with. It was just it was it was after the important stuff had happened, as far as as people were concerned. But I just liked it because it just demonstrated his character to such a crazy extent to keep putting him in more and more ridiculous and absurd situations and keep ratcheting up the sort of the, the tension and the stakes and, and everything like that and see how we reacted. His character just comes across, you know, wonderfully and all those sort of stuff. So that, and because not so many people have written about that period, it seemed that like, Oh, I should write about that period because it's missing. So I'll, I'll, mm. I'll focus on that quite heavily.
1: What, what struck me. Well, one, just the, the thing about, their desert experiences, Timothy and Brian and, and the parallels with uh, Crowley started. and Newberg. Yeah. And and the bigger picture is a as a big fan of the Eighth Circuit model. it seemed like Barrett was really influential in that I, I think that was a long term developmental project for Leary, but it seemed like those the, the Leary Barrett collaboration was particularly influential.
0: It was certainly significant. I mean Leary had been working on the model before he met Brian. And indeed, working on it many years after. We worked over it for decades. And you could see it just changing and, and being structured because he was such a sort of systematic thinker. You had the um, that essay, The Seven Tongues of God. And then I think by the time he met Brian, he was thick, trying to use a five-circuit model. But Brian, coming from a, an artistic perspective, had his own take on these, these states of consciousness that he was getting from, from psychedelics that... He, you know, had wonderful names like the Land of the Giant Suns and the Land of the Incredible Goodies and the Loon Time and all these things, which they sound entirely different to the neurosomatic level or, or or whatever. But when they were talking about it, they were clearly on the same page. They were talking about similar mental states of experience, which is a wonderfully helpful and inspiring to know that what happens to you happens to other people. But it was it was it was new perspectives on it for Leary, I think, and I think it really sort of encouraged him in it. And it developed into the Eighth Circuit.
1: Well, so I've always thought, yeah, Leary being Leary, that he probably from his first, well, that trip on mushrooms, whenever it was in Mexico, maybe, probably from that moment on, I imagine he was working on conceptualizing these experiences. And that's what eventually evolved in the Eighth Circuit model. And and what I've seen a lot of Absolutely. recently is a sort of popularization of the Professor Adams story and what does woman want. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. I, I think what's happened is, is one of our Eighth Circuit contemporaries, Antro Ali, has really popularized that story. But from what I can gather, it's kind of a work of fiction. I don't know. Can you comment on that? Do you have a sense? I'm not of-
0: entirely sure what, what, what this story you're referring to is.
1: Oh, okay. And What Does Woman Want, which is a book by Leary, he chronicles the story of a mysterious Professor Adams that comes to Millbrook. And he's a Westerner, I think maybe a university professor, but he's been turned on to kind of like tantric Hindu and the chakra system. And he kind of reveals the secrets of the Hindu chakra system to Leary. And Leary really runs with that as the Eighth Circuit model. Maybe we're going off on a topic that I, for some reason, I thought you had commented on the past and I was hoping to get your comments on again because the myth is that that he kind of delivered the model to Leary. and it's a great story, and that's the way Leary presents it in this book in the early years at Millbrook, but I think it really takes away from Leary's genius and creativity and how much work he put into this model. It wasn't just a, yeah. I think the chakras inspired him and and influenced the model, but I don't think it was that simple.
0: Many, many things inspired and influenced the model, and it was it was such a constantly changing and and, and shifting thing, as I say, over decades. That yeah. the notion that he was just handed it as a as a complete thing is is a little bit poetic,
1: right? Uh,
0: cl- clearly, but you know, no harm in having a little bit of a poetic background. <laughs> to, well, yeah, to, to the, uh,
1: never let the truth get in the way of a good story.
0: Yeah, he, I mean, he loved his Irish facts which she always defined as like, uh, you know, uh, normal facts, but better. That was an Irish fact. That was.
1: (laughs) Right. So let's maybe circle back to the beginning here and paint a little picture of, of Timothy Leary. Can you tell us a little about his childhood? I I picture this good little Irish Catholic boy with maybe a mischievous Leary grin. And I don't know if that's.
0: Yeah. That's fairly how I picture him as well. You know, fairly middle-class upper middle-class. I think his father was a dentist. But always the sense of him being trouble. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was everywhere he went. He went to to West Point, and there was a whole saga there in which he was silenced and uh, and spent a year with no one speaking to him. And and then he got out of that and went into universities. And it, it's it's a constant tale of someone being expected to fit in to different establishments and just. Not being able to, just mm. never really being able to. But even through to places like Harvard and 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 things like that, he would he would he would go in at sort of a high level in a prestigious place, rattle around and just create trouble in some way, and sort of <laughs> come flying out of there as he saw it, elevating up to a higher level. Uh, he never seemed to sort of stumble and fall, you know, and lose himself or his status. He he always managed to sort of come out of some disaster and. End up in a better in a better place, which is quite a life skill. I must admit, I do quite admire.
1: <laughs> Served him well as, as time went on. The yeah,
0: I, I always Leary
1: always reminds me of that
0: phrase: "In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king." And I think Leary always proves that that's just nonsense. That in mm. the land of the blind, one-eyed man is going to have you know stones chucked at him and, and be chased out of town, and it's, it's all going to go horribly wrong. When you have that perspective above what everyone else is seeing. They ain't gonna thank you for it in any way, shape, or form.
1: Mm. Yeah. He, so there like what we were talking about earlier, it kind of sets him up himself up to be the scapegoat, just by the nature of where he was at and what mm. he was. Just the context. Yeah, I mean, you,
0: I, I always loved that thing he'd say about uh, you get the Timothy Leary you deserve, mm-hmm. which is or his reaction to any criticism, or it was an awareness that the model of Timothy Leary that you've constructed in in your head, that's yours. you, know, you made that. You're responsible for that. If you're getting angry with it, you know, that's that's that right. sort of thing. The the, the um, the notion of reality tunnels, which you're also familiar with through 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 Rob Wilson's work, is his uh, an idea he got from Leary, and it runs all the way through Leary's work from quite early on. And uh, I, it's just one of those ideas that I just found so useful and liberating and helpful in terms of making sense of you know how other people behave and 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 things like that.
1: Right. And it, it kind of sets yourself up. Like when you run into Timothy Leary and and whatever your perspective is on Timothy Leary, what does that say about you? Exactly. And you really understand it. If you
0: try and write a biography about mm. him in particular, because you get, you know, you marshal all your facts and you, you do your research and you do your interviews and you get all the details and you suddenly become aware that you could use all this, you know, accurate and well-researched stuff, and create an image of him as, you know, a, a, an absolute saint or total hero or a complete fool or a crook or a charlatan or an idiot. You know, it's you could use the same stuff by rearranging it and leaving bits out to create all these wildly different portraits of a person. And then you suddenly have that dawning realisation of, uh, well, to what extent... Is this not a portrait of the man I'm trying to write about? To what extent is this a portrait of me? Mm. You know, it's, it's really when that when that hits you, that's really quite a shocking sort of realization. And then you look again at all the other books on your shelves. <laughs> and <all the> <laughs> and you go,
1: oh, I get it now. Yeah, I mm. get it. It seems like a, a hell of a project you had for your first book there to run into. Some yeah. Of the and because I was like, so, you know, because yeah. I had no
0: idea what I was doing. I had, you know, I was happy to to, to just dive in. And I remember I was taken to see Robert Anton Wilson on one of his film nights when I was over in America uh, doing research, which was um, obviously a a real highlight and personal memory of great importance to me. But I was worried. I thought, oh, he's he's totally going to see right through me. He's going to see. I've got Mm. no idea. What, I, what I'm doing here. And I went to see him and he totally saw through me and he knew I had no idea what I was doing with him and he was delighted about it and he was very welcoming. And it was just such a lovely sort of thing. Of course, of course, you're just, you know, you've gone out on a limb and you try, you're trying something you're not sure you can do. Excellent. You know, <laughs> what, a, nice. what a lovely reaction I got from him. Yeah,
1: that, I, I hear that a lot. I never met Robert Anton Wilson, but uh, it's a common experience that people say he really... He was everything I hoped for and more versus a lot yeah. of people. They meet their their figures and they kind of walk away a little disillusioned. And and so many reports are like Robert Anton Wilson was everything I could hope for and more when I met him.
0: That's partly one of the things that's why I have him so high on, on a pedestal. Because if it's someone who's trying to find a way of living and trying to find a, a philosophy that makes life a good sort of thing, you do have to look at them. And you do have to see how they treat him. i mean like timothy leary you could make a lot of arguments about how he treated his children especially from his first marriage and the, no one's really going to sort of put leary as a life model you know he's right. the, he's, a, he's he's this he's this little fire that ran through the 20th century. He's this trickster spirit you know you don't you wouldn't want to miss your dad <laughs> right <laughs> Perhaps. i'm sure Zach, you would disagree with that at the older tim you know was a, a much uh a, a better family man than in his early days or or what like that. But someone like Robert Anton Wilson, you just get the sense of they have this philosophy, and they apply it to life. And it's fertile, and it's good. And it works,
1: you know, that's an interesting, I mean, when you talk about Leary, and the comparisons to Crowley, and, you know, maybe these, these, these people that have deep flaws, like all of us, and Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily working to, to iron out those things so much as they're blazing ahead. They're blazing new trails and they don't have time to be bothered with some other things because they've got Ooh. frontiers to explore. You mentioned Leary's West Point experience earlier. And I wanted to make note of that because it seems like it's easy to underemphasize. emphasize. Uh, he got in trouble. I can't remember why, but he got excommunicated, right? Which is sort of a West Point punishment where we're just going to give you the silent treatment until you break and quit. Yeah. And, and what was amazing about Leary is he never broke. He just yeah. uh, kept going and they find they broke, he broke them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. After, you know, years, after years of being you know treated, which is such a hard thing to endure. Right. You know, an, ent- an entire system turned against you. Over, and it was over something stupid. I'm sure it was over a bottle of whiskey on a train or something like that
1: yeah and it more, it's
0: more if he'd have admitted to it and taken the punishment and and uh, and acknowledged their authority
1: over him i think
0: that's the sort of, then and, it wouldn't have escalated to the thing it became
1: i think one of the things he negotiated is he wanted a public apo- a written apology written or spoken out loud in public as a part of his uh that's right yeah Acquiescence. so that's so right i just and he, and I, he got an
0: honorable discharge in the end didn't he that was that was
1: right right yeah. and i wonder just to be able to endure that it, it kind of you know Larry seemed like he had these kind of repeating patterns in his life and this kind of is like that being stuck in solitude when he was in prison where he just was given the silent treatment in West Point and everybody else before I don't know if anybody had ever beaten the system like him, not that
0: I'm aware of
1: right. and so he yeah, and just, I
0: mean the system worked you know the system broke you that was it was there to break you right um, and it worked. and then Larry came along.
1: Right and I don't have the same statistics on solitude but I believe he endured just an amazing amount of solitary confinement in prison that just no human being should be able to withstand but somehow he Ooh, had to yes,
0: resilience. in the 70s yeah in the 70s yeah right.
1: absolutely. when he was recaptured it would be interesting to get some data on that because Yeah just, and he, it's
0: the way it's the way he reframed it as he basically got on retreat and the entire system was there to help him have a <laughs> this solitary sort of hermetic sort of uh, retreat. His ability to reframe circumstances in his favour is always quite funny, you know. And wow, what goes horribly wrong? He can always go ah, but you know this is good for these reasons. Yeah.
1: So that was. Okay. I reread your book in preparation for this interview. And one of the things I walked away with is just his kind of chameleon-like ability to adjust to his environment. And being a man who went through so many various experiences, he just had a lot of different personas to take on. And then being able to kind of recast his environment to a favorable, to be in solitary confinement for the amount of time he was, I think is, is beyond... 99.999% Ninety nine point nine 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 percent of us, and yeah, and I, th- I think that's why I
0: wanted to sort of not focus so much on you know nineteen sixty seven era, you know, mm. and on that everybody knew from the 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 film reels and and that summer of love era, because that was him, an older academic man, adapting to the time. But it was always him adapting to the time in different ways. And if if he was on you know on the run with arms dealers in Switzerland, it would be a very different way to if he was in San Francisco with the Hey Ashbury. Uh, so to just focus on one point sort of misses that sort of Zelig-like changing sort of chameleon that uh, that is what's interesting about him. I think.
1: Yeah, you did a, a heck of a job fleshing out a lot of unexplored areas in his life and, and casting him in a, a a more fair and balanced light for sure. Oh, thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it came out at the same time as a, a very anti-Leary book by is it robert greenfield greenfield yes i always want to say Greenleaf. i'm sorry uh robert greenfield which is on a big pub, mine was just on a small book which just came out in there on a big publisher mine so pretty much disappeared and the, the greenfield book i think still has framed a lot of people's understanding of who Leary is and that he's a badon, but he's, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. you see at at festivals in the UK and there's usually someone doing a talk on psychedelics and at times you wander in and go, they've read the Robert Greenfield book. and (laughs) that's why they know Leary. And and you just sort of wander out even in that Michael Pollan book, which was, which was, which I thought was great. The the change your mind. uh, Change your mind. Yeah. He starts off and every time he mentions Leary, it's like, but, Oh, well, we'll get to, we'll get to (laughs) him. You know the terrible Charlton Leary will get to him, but by the time he starts to write about him, from my reading, it's almost like he was having a sort of a dawning realization that maybe he was actually necessary. Mm. Maybe this needed to happen. It needed this this sort of character, even though he'd been told that this is the demon of the of the saga. It was a, the sort of realization that actually, yeah, that story it's not that misses out an awful lot.
1: Yeah, I get the feeling that if it wasn't Timothy Leary, it just would have been all that shadow scapegoatism would have been projected on some other leadership figure in the movement.
0: Yeah, it's entirely possible. And Leary does wear it well. Right. Uh, And, you know, the people who criticize him will happily use his ideas without credit. They'll happily talk about, you know, set and setting, you know, Mm. the the, – Question of whether they'd even know about psychedelics if Leary hadn't sort of forced them so firmly into the mainstream at that particular point in time is always an interesting one. You know, we can't we can't really see what the image or the research into psychedelics would have been like without Leary, because his impact was so monumental.
1: Right. Um, I heard a recent or somewhat recent podcast with Michael Pollan where this subject came up, and he said, Everyone they talked to they would say it would be over simplistic to blame it all on Timothy Leary. Yeah. And then they would go <laughs> on to blame it on Timothy Leary. Um,
0: and this is what I really, I think I really admire about Robert Anton Wilson is that almost uniquely, he was the one person who stood by him and said, no, but look, look at his ideas. Look at what he's, his work, look at what he's telling us. That's the important thing here. This is really useful stuff. This is, this is good. Mm-hmm. This is the goal. And there no, no, not many people standing alongside him when he was when he was doing this. You know, he was very much out on a limb, being the, you know, the the last standing supporter of of Timothy Leary. But you couldn't fault his arguments when he does direct you to the work and he does direct you to the philosophy behind it. You know, you could you could see why it, it mattered, and you can see why Leary was such a shock to the um the the intellectual world of the 20th century yeah and it would have been very easy for robert anton wilson to drift away for his own credibility you know it would have been an easy thing for him to do at at that sort of point but he never did and
1: he hung in there fanatically and passionately i mean passionately yeah
0: yeah definitely definitely absolutely it does him great credit i think
1: well, I'll ask you if I know we're dusting off some old memories. But I, uh, over the pandemic, I checked out the interpersonal diagnosis of personality, Leary's oh, book yeah. right before he discovered psychedelics, and and I've been in the psychotherapy profession for the last decade or so, so I'm I'm kind of in the know. And I was I was floored by that book. I just thought, for a book that was written in the nineteen fifties, I thought it. There we go. I thought it was extraordinarily progressive. I mean, you listed several points in your book as well about why it was. It was. I don't, I just wonder, had he not discovered psychedelics, what his contribution to the field yeah. might have been like? Yeah, I
0: mean, I at the time, I believe that book was incredibly highly thought of and and uh, influential. And it's just the fact that his name became dirt that's well, I, I don't know, so it's interesting speaking speaking to you about this. I did wonder if other models had sort of come along and superseded it, and it was it was there was obvious flaws in it from a modern perspective or, or anything like that.
1: Or now, you know there's kind of two competing fields, maybe, or three or more. There's kind of the cognitive behavioral modality we'll call it in psychotherapy that's that's rigorously studied and kind of clinically accepted as evidence-based and that's kind of what the mainstream viewpoints fall on these days and then there's humanistic psychology which is where leary would fit in and you know these two fields are kind of at odds with each other in a way but it seems like leary was on the cutting edge of what we would call humanistic psychology and yeah I, you know, I get the impression, particularly from your book and, and others, maybe he was just kind of getting burned out and, and maybe he wouldn't have progressed that much further because he was kind of feeling like he was hitting a brick wall in his field before discovering psychedelics. I don't know.
0: Possibly. But I mean, he had a lot of ideas in there, Well, particularly once he discovered psychedelics, where the therapist would take the same medicine as the person mm. being treated, that the, psych, the therapist would take psychedelics with the people he was working with, which were wildly ahead of, of, of the thinking of the time and are still probably quite troubling and problematic for sort of a lot of people, even though I can see his reasoning, I can see why he thought it had to sort of try and escape that sort of objective lock that was blocking the, the, the work, the blocking blocking things from sort of working. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a very good question. The, I, I sense that there was stuff in there that would have been a bit too much for people, even if he hadn't gone down the psychedelic world.
1: Right. But, it, you know, it's well, nowhere new,
0: to the I, same extent, put it that way. I,
1: I actually, here's an interesting exercise. I took your main points from your book, and maybe we can go through them real quickly. So he kind of pointed out that psychotherapy was really what was considered normal was really just white middle class values, for example. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that very is- much
0: an idea we're much more comfortable with now. than. Oh,
1: yeah. Than and we're there, talking yeah. about white privilege and inclusivity. Yeah. I think, you know, that was maybe something he would have been persecuted for back in the day. But like you say, is, is become really a, a flag that we plan ourselves on now. It's
0: called weird of- now, isn't it? Weird white educated just, Oh, uh, there's, 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 a, there's a terminology for
1: i've not heard that but that's great uh, yeah the other one is is symptoms versus environment and circumstances so a focus on symptoms versus looking at the context and the circumstances of the person's life i think that is also a big point in humanistic psychology that's still that that actually neuroscience is starting to figure out but it quite it hasn't quite made traction yet but it's getting there so that's fascinating looking at neurosis versus pro-survival adaptions. I think that's a very progressive point. It's time has not yet come. My, my background is in gestalt therapy and we speak of creative adjustments. We don't think of dispenses. We think of creative adjustments. And so it's kind of a positive spin on these things, but it's still kind of, it's out there, but I wouldn't say it's gained a lot of acceptance. You know, the, the field is really focused on diagnosis and neurosis and clinical assessment. And so it's, it's just kind of the, the mindset isn't is more of that medical mindset is still dominates the field, and then um, personal responsibility over victimhood. Mm. Um, you know, I think we're starting to see this kind of idea of responsibility and empowerment. Uh, a lot of these ideas I see bubbling up from kind of the coaching and self empowerment movements more so than the the psychotherapy. But I see them all as really. Uh, I was, you know, I was remembering.
0: I was thinking about that song he did with was it Throbbing Cox, in the eighties, where it's got the voice of Leary over this sort of this, this helicopter noises and and it's uh, mm. sort of a, it's sort of an angry sort of techno-y sort of thing, and Leary's going, "Welcome to the prime time victim show. You're a victim. You love to be a victim," uh, and just sort of shouting at the listener to accept that they they want to be a victim. They love. The, the, their own victimhood and stuff like that and i'm thinking imagine that now where uh, you know that that sort of there is that real need to sort of associate with you know to, to be not the aggressor to 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 you know to be in particular groups where you can be seen more as a the really aggrieved against you know that it's, it's a common thing now it's a very sort of common thing i would, yeah. I would imagine leary if, if, people would have be been furious with him
1: <laughs> right yeah. at the moment. That's why, I mean, I'm going through all these points. I see they're all, to me, things that are finally starting to take traction, but that maybe uh, would have just caused a quite a ruffle, you know, back in the 1950s. The last one I had here was the psychologist is not a neutral observer and is changed by the process. This is a very taboo subject in psychotherapy. And I think incredibly relevant. And we'll see it's I think all of these points will see their day. But again, it's just... I always see how far ahead Leary is of his time. Yeah. I mean, you you get a real sense
0: from what you've just been reading out, just how deeply he understood the mind or how Mm -hmm. deeply he'd been thinking about the mind and framing the mind and systemizing the mind. And then he became the psychedelic guy. You know, he had that, that background to him. It wasn't that he was just sort of, a young kid thrown into psychedelics or, or, or something like that, there was there was a real wealth of knowledge and, and learning on that. If you look at, say, the, the music in the 1960s when psychedelic hits, it was it was really people who had mastered their craft and then hit psychedelics, who then went on to level up too. So you had the Beatles doing sort of Mersey beat, and then they hit acid, and then they sort of went up. You had Bob Dylan, you know, he'd mastered sort of folk, and then he turned psychedelic Mm. and then he he leveled up you had the beach boys they got the surf thing down they they were they were they were brilliant and then they hit acid and then they did their the real masterworks and their their, things that achievements it's very different to the young kids who are leaving school and taking acid and then forming bands you know they not not having that sort of bedrock of uh, experience and, and knowledge there when you hit that sort of expanded mindset is 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 it's 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 something to look out for? I think I think it's quite an interesting.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. He really had the 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 foundation in place, and yet there was a sort of tension in his life. I think between the suicide of his wife and maybe a little frustration with his profession, and then suddenly, boom! Mm. Yeah, yeah, the Star Seed signals just came out. Were there any for somebody that had researched Leary so thoroughly? Were there any new revelations in there for you?
0: revelations I'm not sure about revelations it was a a delight to see it I would have I would have killed to have seen it 15 years earlier when I was when I was was working on that book If, if there had been someone like Wilson who'd sort of come along and framed it in in those sort of terms I think I mainly got from that though was Bob's loyalty to Leary there's there's many things in there that you go, oh well, maybe it's first draft, but that doesn't hold up too well. You know, that's that's dated or in some way. But it's always from a desire to sort of stand by his friend. Mm. It's not a neutral defense. It's a very loving defense. Mm. Uh the general notion that no hey you have to look at his work. That stands up that's absolutely that's absolutely valid. And it's you know and it's a great introduction to all, all those those sort of things. But it's not Bob at his most yeah, dispassionate or neutral or uh, objective by by a long chalk. And maybe that's why he passed on it and it never saw the light of day at that time. But yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah,
1: yeah uh, as I was talking to a friend of mine about it, they were saying how it was just nice to read young Bob again, you know. Kind yes,
0: of yes. <laughs> excited by ideas and excited by uh, the new horizons that were just suddenly appearing. Thought
1: so. I wanted to throw something out there, and maybe I have some new information on you that I found. But there was this infamous meeting of the pranksters, the East and the West Coast psychedelia, met at Millbrook.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Do do you remember that?
0: Yeah, and it was a bit of a a damn squid, and people were a bit disappointed. But there was, it was said, I think, in um, the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test book. That Leary didn't come down and he didn't see them or something like that. But there, there are photos of them together. Right. Photos of Leary on the bus. So that's not the case. You know, that's that's been uh, uh, it's been misremembered. Debunked. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think. But I, I think I think he was meditating or something when they came, so they had to wait for him. And
1: what's been said later, I think after the fact, is that Leary was sick at the time and just wasn't up to it.
0: Oh, that rings. That, out. And that's what's
1: in your book. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think Tom Wolfe really painted Leary and the the Millbrook crowd as as kind of just fuddy duddy intellectuals. You know, it was like the party bus rolled into town, and I can just imagine you know fireworks going off and music blaring, and just the circus is in town. And the the picture that that. Tom Wolfe painted his book is that they were just not having it. They were this fuddy-duddy, you know, kind of the tweed yes. blazer crowd wasn't having it.
0: Absolutely.
1: And I I remember seeing quotes where Leary was, I think he was really upset by this image that had been painted. And he kind of lashed out at somebody saying, you know, that Tom Wolfe got this like third hand and blah, blah, blah. That's
0: right. And
1: and the story, well, and so there's new information about this. So I want to correct the record here. I was listening to a podcast recently a lady by the name of Lindsay Kent did a, a documentary on the Pranksters called Going Further that was released in 2016. And she okay. was just on a podcast in the Grateful Dead community that I was listening to. And she interviewed Zach Leary and Ram Dass. Oh, and yes. she brought this up and Zach Leary gave the accepted story. Well, you know, Tim was sick that day and it just didn't work out. But there was pictures of them on the bus. They did get together. And, and Rob Dass, no, no, no. Let me tell you what really happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> what he's told them is that the Millbrook crowd had just come off of a three day LSD deep dive. Right. So they were just completely wiped out. And as the pranksters were pulling up, Neil Casti was handing out speed and they were all getting just ripped on speed. And they realized there's just no way these two groups are going to yeah. have any. There's no place yeah. for these two groups to meet. Yeah. (laughs) And so apparently it was just kind of a bust from the beginning. And that was, Mm. that's the Ram Dass myth buster. That
0: that does sound very plausible.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, there's there's not many, there's not many places that who have Ken Casey and the, the the bus of many Pranksters suddenly turned up outside their house would be in the right frame of mind for it. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Right.
0: (laughs) That is probably, you know.
1: And if you're a prankster, I'm sure your attitude is to go with it in the moment and just be there and why can't these guys just show up for us but i can understand
0: yeah and and tom wolf got the timothy leary he deserved so there you go it all works out right there
1: you have it there you have it exactly one of the things we touched on earlier i think is that leary was just flexible by nature you you kind of show in his book how he kind of adapts to his environment and he goes from maybe the 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 hip cool harvard professor to the 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 psychedelic cult leader almost in the in California to then, you know, merging with the FBI interrogators and then maybe kind of melding into his uh time in Switzerland with the French arms dealer and and kind of driving a Porsche and Yeah. And, and he always had this, what was it? You could be anyone this time around. Yes. And this idea of reality selection. And I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but I always I don't know if I, I operate that way. It seems like maybe Timothy's ability to change completely is, is kind of part of his nature. Yeah. And there's maybe something about the rest of us. We, we kind of like Robert Anton Wilson has a wonderful essay ca- called Becoming Who You Are. Yeah. And it seems like that's a little bit more reasonable approach. Is to- Definitely. It was, it, it,
0: was, it was not a natural thing that he was doing. It's, it's not a thing that other people can do. It was very postmodern. It was very much in keeping with that sort of postmodern 20th century sort of period, the idea of just completely sort of mm. uh, swapping those. But it wasn't very human. <laughs> it was, there are deeper cores to us as individuals uh, that if we sort of nurse uh, them that we flourish. It's not, it doesn't seem a natural way to lead a good life just to suddenly become someone else. There's a sense of loss in there somewhere. There's a sense of... Um, yeah, it's, it, it wouldn't work for me, put it put it that way. But it's 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 something that only he could really do.
1: Yeah, there's something about Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary, where I wonder how much they're just trying to create a message of hope and optimism. Yeah, and and,
0: and, a, and a philosophy that makes life worth living.
1: Yeah. And, and so, you know, is this this idea that you could become anybody anytime around, are they just, do they really believe that? Or the space migration, intelligence increase in life and extension? Are they, how much do they truly believe that? And how much are they just trying to create a more optimistic and hopeful message and, and yeah, kind of reorient us and, you know, change is possible?
0: How much they believe it. It's, it's certainly a, a belief that they wear at that time, because it seems the right one. I mean, Bob would, like on certain days he'd be a Buddhist, or on certain days he'd be a Taoist, and on certain mm. days he'd be an atheist or something like that. So he's able to switch belief systems, but he was still very much himself. He was still, you know, personality-wise, he was, you know, he, he wasn't completely changing himself in the way that sort of sort of Leary did. And it for Bob in particular, it all was about finding a philosophy that made life a joy and something worthwhile i mean what else should philosophers be trying to do you know it was never blind optimism it was never just we'll, we'll believe everything's going to be fine and we'll put our head in the sand and everything's going to be great and everything's nice and we'll just uh, pretend that you know it was always a sort of a pragmatic optimism it was always the understanding that the the optimistic mindset would Find all these different solutions to problems when a pessimistic mind would say that there isn't right. any, no point trying. So just by statistical sort of odds, having this sort of pragmatic optimistic mindset was going to make things better compared to other mindsets. And he did all this despite a lot of pain in his life, a lot of suffering, physical pain from the post-polio mm. syndrome. He and Brian Barrett, who I mentioned earlier, who Leary was adamant they had to get together and he wanted them to to speak to each other and uh, they had much to teach each other and they were similar in many ways it was just that brian was was just so vital and he was unkillable and you know he was always so healthy and he, he could take anything and you know whereas bob had the physical pain and had the the, the physical suffering and it, and he became more compassionate because of it
1: mm-hmm.
0: there was a there's a greater sort of emphasis on compassion in his philosophy than in brian who was just this or sort of this wild goat boy you know <laughs> uh, as much as i love him you know he was um yeah you could you could sort of really see see the difference there yeah and i do think what the philosophy that robert anton wilson put together and sort of gave to us is a real gift and it was to give it to us was a compassionate sort of thing because do i do think people who read robert anton wilson do and absorb it and you know take it on board do have a higher quality of life than people who are unfamiliar with the ideas he's, he's, Mm. he's talking about in, in a lot of ways and they're less likely to sort of, you know, go horribly wrong. It could go a bit wrong, but you know, not quite so um, Mm. out there as as some others.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. And I, and I've heard you say it in the past, but just uh, noting the bravery of Robert Anton Wilson in planting that flag for Timothy Leary and really putting the message out there
0: selflessly
1: and, and by making huge sacrifices. I mean, as
0: you know, as this podcast series will show, the people that Robert Anton Wilson was attracted to for ideas, you know, he got the good ones, you know, he, you know, whether it was uh, James Joyce or Kozinski or uh, or Leary uh, or Huxley uh, in the 20th century, you know, he was finding the jewels time and again. He was finding the gold. You know, this this was this was the uh, the, the, the thinkers that matter. And many of many who are not credible or respected. I'm thinking I'm thinking of the Ergonon guy who who was taken to jail. Wilhelm Reich and all this stuff was, was was Wilhelm Reich and things like that. Bob would be quite happy to sort of stand alongside Wilhelm Reich because of certain ideas that he found useful, even though he. He wasn't necessarily endorsing everything, but there was a, if there was something that he thought was true and valid, he would stand up for it regardless of how much that person was being rejected and was was being martyred. It's that one-eyed man in the the land, the blind thing again. Yeah. And right. It, you're right, it just it just it speaks very well of, of Bob that he
1: did that mm. time and time again. Excellent. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, as we wrap up here, is there Maybe you could summarize, these are big questions, I think, but Leary's contribution to the world and or his influence on Robert Anton Wilson?
0: Oh, huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly his, his yeah. uh, influence on 20th century West was absolutely huge. And, you know, there's there's a constant stream, since i put that book out, of people trying to make the Timothy Leary story or the Timothy Leary uh, TV series and falls uh, pulls down when they get to the, the script side of it. It always, it's still never come off despite some really talented and, you know, uh, well-known people getting behind it. And it's, you need to go into his ideas and you need to realise that it's his ideas that justify paying attention to Leary. That the, the idea of just this sort of this wild crazy charlatan is fun, but it's just not as interesting as the the bigger picture, I think.
1: Right. Right. There's kind of the the man, the myth, and the legend, and it's easy to get wrapped up in the the mythology and and yeah. uh, and beneath that there's some real intelligence that I don't know he gets credit for. And it, does, it certainly doesn't get enough credit. Sure. All right. Well, John Higgs, uh, thank you for your time. It has certainly been a, a pleasure talking to you. It's, you. it's been great, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where can we find you on the internet? You have a, a book out, and
0: yeah, I've always got a book out. You know me. <laughs> always a book, a book out. The last one was William Blake versus the world which is out here in the UK. It's out in America and Canada next summer. So keep an eye out for that. But I'm I'm basically on Higgs.com, so easy to find. And my newsletter is the best way to, to work out what I'm
1: up to. Excellent. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to John Higgs for taking the time to talk with us. You can find John at johnhiggs.com, where you can check out his latest book, William Blake vs. the World. And keep an eye out for his next book, Love and Let Die, on James Bond and the Beatles, coming out in the fall of 2022. Thank you to Christina Pearson for fighting the good fight and keeping the work of her father, Robert Anton Wilson, alive and thriving. Thank you to our executive producer, Richard Rasa, for keeping us to a high standard. Thank you to our producer, Ian, for leading the charge. And thank you to our engineer, Ryan Reeves, for putting it all together. We look forward to sharing our interview with Adam Go-Rightly for episode five on Carrie Thornley, which will be available on the 23rd of January, 2022. In the meantime, I invite you to check out British Discordian Jamie Dodd's F23 podcast, where yours truly appears at a guest in an episode that just came out. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor a e Hilaritas.
0: Astound me, amaze me, perplex me and teach me something new.